The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello. When the Bronte sisters look to populate their books, Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights, they turn to a particular kind of hero. Passionate, sexually magnetic, moody, and cynical, with dark secrets afflicting his heart. We sometimes say a hero is the straw that stirs the drink. This hero was different. This was the drink that was once stirred and now stands murky and tumultuous, waiting, perhaps, to be stirred again. We know him in the Bronte books as Rochester and Heathcliff, but they were recognized at the time as Byronic heroes, inspired by Lord Byron, both for the figures in his poems and the persona attached to the poet himself. He was, in the famous phrase, someone who was mad, bad, and dangerous to know. But there was another side to Byron, a satirical, comedic, even playful side that often gets overlooked. We'll discuss all that and more with his biographer, David Ellis, today on The History of Literature. Hello, hello, hello. No literary news today. We're going straight to Byron. I'm Jack Wilson, your host of the podcast. But not to worry, dear patrons of our audio feast, we will not leave you hungry. Although we're skipping the appetizer today, we will serve up some dessert in the form of a My Last Book with three authors, the co-authors of the novel When We Had Wings. We'll hear their selection for the last book they will ever read. And of course, our main course will be satiating as well. Plenty of nourishment here. Lord Byron is always a treat. I mentioned the dark and brooding side of him, the Byronic hero, and God knows he had plenty of cause for that. He was born with a deformity, and his mother, among others, never let him forget it. But he was also born with gifts, including poetic genius and wondrous good looks. Let's let Sir Walter Scott tell us about them. Byron's countenance is a thing to dream of, he once said. A certain fair lady told a friend of mine that when she first saw Byron, it was in a crowded room, and she did not know who it was, but her eyes were instantly nailed, and she said to herself, That pale face is my fate. And, poor soul, if a godlike face and godlike powers could have made excuse for devilry, to be sure she had one. End quote, a fancy way of saying she was debauched for cause. Scott also said, quote, As for poets, I have seen, I believe, all the best of our own time and country, and though Burns had the most glorious eyes imaginable, I never thought any of them would come up to an artist's notion of the character, except Byron. End quote. Another woman said, quote, His voice was such a voice as the devil tempted Eve with. 
And yet another observer, a man named Charles Matthews, once said, Byron was the only man I ever contemplated to whom I felt disposed to apply the word beautiful. Hmm. Wow. Beautiful, sleeked tongue, as Milton might say. What a charmer. And this dashing, Byronic hero comes into view. No wonder he was as famous as he was, personally as well as poetically. On the other hand, was the gloomy hero a bit of an act? Maybe the humorous and teasing Byron, who so often comes through on the page, was the real one, and the brooding hero more of an effect. Sir Walter Scott went to lunch with Byron and Charles Matthews and later said, I never saw Byron so full of fun, frolic, wit, and whim. He was as playful as a kitten. After Byron died, Scott wrote in his journal, What I liked about Byron, besides his boundless genius, what, <laughs> let, me, let me interrupt Scott's journal there. What I liked about him, besides his boundless genius, oh, just that. Boundless genius? Ho-hum. <laughs> Let me tell you about something else I liked about him. Okay, back to the journal. What I liked about Byron, Scott writes, besides his boundless genius, was his generosity of spirit as well as purse, and his utter contempt of all affectations of literature, from the school magisterial style to the lackadaisical. Byron was a mischief-maker, Scott goes on to say. He would tell one man the unpleasant things that had been privately said of him by another, and he loved to mystify people, to be thought awful, mysterious, and gloomy, and sometimes hinted at strange causes. End quote. Intriguing. But what if he actually had some strange causes to hint at? What if the mystery and gloom were real and well-founded? And what if the humor was real, too? What are we to make of this guy, Byron? Wonderful poet, celebrity author, man of mystery. Luckily, we have an expert here to help us untangle all this. David Ellis has written the book Byron for the Critical Live series published by Reaction Books. It offers a fresh, concise, and clear-eyed account of the romantic poet's flamboyant life and works. David Ellis is next. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. 
Okay, joining me now is David Ellis, Emeritus Professor of English at the University of Kent. His books include Byron in Geneva, That Summer of 1816, Perfidious Albion, The Story of Stendhal and British Culture, and The Comic in Shakespeare. He's here today to discuss his work on Byron for the Critical Live series by Reaction Books. David Ellis, welcome to the History of Literature. Uh, thank you very much. So, I'm interested in when you got started with Byron and if it was something you were assigned in school or if you can remember the first time you read him. I can't remember the first time I read him, but it I was hardly be in school, I think. By the time I was at school, Byron wasn't much taught, mm. so, except for famous anthology pieces. I don't know, the Ossidian came down like a wolf on the fold and things like that. Mm -hmm. So, my contact with Byron was rather roundabout. I was doing a lot of work on D.H. Lawrence, that other Nottingham writer from a different end of the social spectrum. And I noticed that uh, Lawrence and his friends used to go to Newstead Abbey to picnic. So when I was doing some research around there, I, I went myself to Newstead Abbey and began to be interested then in Byron, I think, from that moment onward. You can still go to Newstead Abbey, of course. It's a marvelous place to visit. I yeah. recommend it. And were you interested in his life and his his biography, or was it the poetry that was drawing you in? It was, at that point, um, it was, strange enough, it was um, the letters. Mm. Because I was interested in Lawrence as one of the great letter writers in English literature. Very few, it's uh, very hard to think of anybody who's more interesting, I suppose, Keats. Uh, but the other one, his rival in that department, is Byron. Mm. So I was very interested in, um, I acquired um, March and's wonderful edition of uh, Byron's letters and uh, was enchanted by them. I thought they were terrific. And I went from there, probably, from, to reading a lot of the poetry. So I, it's a very roundabout way I came to Byron. Yeah, I'm not sure I've read Byron's letters. Are they similar oh, to Keats's, in, uh, or is he describing his adventures? Uh, well, I what... think what's interesting, uh, you know, when I think, what, you know, why are Byron Lawrence two of the greatest letters writers in English literature? It's partly because they're both exiles. Yeah. They both were forced abroad or felt they had to live abroad. And uh, they had to keep up contact somehow. And they, of course, this was an age uh, still in Lawrence's time, but in particularly in Byron's, when you uh, you really put a lot of effort into letters and you you made them interesting to people. So I suppose what strikes anybody about Byron's letters is that he is so funny. I mean, they are mm. very witty and amusing letters. And from there, you can go a kind of easy path to the comic poems, to the great comic poems of. Beppo and Vision of Judgment, and of course, Don Ewan. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about how he was received in his day. I mean, people got the humor in his poetry, right? Was that part of the attraction? Oh, perhaps, but that wasn't why he was so celebrated. Mm -hmm. In fact, I'm not sure that people altogether approved of the comic strain in him because it tended to be irreverent and a bit shocking to many. No, it wasn't that at all that attracted his first readers it was it was something quite different it was the the stories in verse that were popular at the time mm. it's hard to imagine now because people don't uh, 
read stories in verse, they read them in prose. Um, it would be seen unnatural to read an adventure story in verse. There aren't many around anyway. But in those days, they were very popular. And Byron, after Child Harold, excelled in them, really. And that his popularity was based on uh, the Corsair, the Bride of Abydos, um, Lara, things like that, after, of course, Child Harold. Mm. And then I think what made him so popular was that he, he kind of introduced into English and indeed European culture uh, a new kind of hero mm. um, based very much on his own character, on, the, on, on himself. And how would you characterize that character? Uh, the great thing about the biography hero is that he's very melancholic, he's brooding, he has some mysterious things to expiate, he has uh, mysterious ill-doings in his past that uh, he doesn't want to talk about, and he, he feels he's exhausted the pleasures of life already, and he's only... He's only in his early 20s. Mm. Added to that, of course, uh, he is assumed to be very attractive, good-looking, as indeed uh, in many ways Byron was, and mm. also courageous and uh, an adventure hero, somebody who could uh, fight well and so on. Uh, it sounds like Heathcliff. Now, well, Heathcliff, uh, that's interesting, because Heathcliff, yes, is a derivation, I think, of the Byronic hero, and uh, there's also something slightly satanic uh, about <laughs> the, the Byronic hero. Uh, right. A sort of, uh, there's a kind of, uh, well, he was a obviously um, dangerous-to-know kind of yeah. feel about him. Right. And, I mean, he was popular with men and women, right? Yes, he had a... It's interesting. Uh, we, we talked about comedy initially, didn't we? And um, his publisher, um, the quite conservative right-wing Murray, used to, at the, towards the end of his writing career, used to be badgering him to write more for women because initially his success had been... He had a great appeal to the female readership. Mm. Uh, after all, uh, the stories are also uh, love stories. They're, mm -hmm. they're answers. Um, so... Uh, yeah, towards the end, I suspect, well, the end of his career, it was a short career, uh, but with Don Juan, I think the, the female readership fell off a little because people got nervous about it, uh, about what he was saying, about the lack of religious feeling and so on. Right. And how much did his personal history or what was known about his celebrity and is the scandals and so on, how much did that feed into the reading experience for his contemporary readers? Enormously, really. I'm sure there were other cases before, but he's sort of the first example of what we know so well as celebrity culture. Mm -hmm. Because he published Charles Harold, and it was very successful. And people in the kind of readership, upper class aristocratic readership, people were very anxious to know about him. And so he began to appear in various salons. But yes, and then he got embroiled in terrible scandal of, of one kind or another. And this, I think, probably, as it often does in these cases, was a good selling point. It, it mm. helped him to sell more, more copies, really. Mm -hmm. He's always in the headlines, so to speak. He was, yes. Yes, he was in the headlines, yes. And just how scandalous would you say that he was? Would we consider these scandals shocking today? That's a very good question, because I think it depends who you are, of course. But he was, if you think about it in a more conventional way, he was 
scandalous because in his use of mistresses, he was promiscuous. He was scandalous because he had affairs with upper-class aristocratic women. Um, so that was that was a bit scandalous. But seething underneath, as it were, or rumbling underneath, were rumours about things that... Uh, one thing that was particularly shocking at the time, probably, was his bisexuality. And Caroline Lamb, who was one of his cast-off mistresses, as it were, spread rumours about what had gone on on his grand tour in, in Greece with boys. So there, there was that element which was very could be very dangerous for him. But even more so, of course, was the rumour that he'd had an affair with his half-sister. Mm. So that was incest. That was also, well, I suppose at any point, uh, it's quite a scandalous business. Yeah, that would shock us today, I would say. Yeah, yeah. And how did his politics fit into the public's conception of him? Was he widely praised for his revolutionary views and support, or were they controversial? Oh, they were terribly controversial. Yes, mm -hmm. he was, again, that led eventually, I think, to the lessening of support, uh, because his political views become more and more obvious in, in things like Don Juan. He was, it's complicated, because he was a, he was a left-wing Whig, as they said at the time, um, so that he, on the whole, in his family, they'd greeted the French Revolution with some approval, and they were never keen on the prosecution of the wars against Napoleon. And the Tories, of course, were in power throughout that period. So he was he was very much a, a figure from the left. But on the other hand, uh, he may have wanted a, a revolution, but he wanted a revolution that was led by aristocrats like himself. Um, <laughs> right. So he was slightly nervous of what he would call the mob uh, and mm. that... Uh, and the more radical elements in British politics. But no, he had um, eventually he gained quite a following amongst lower middle class radicals after his death because his politics were on the whole uh, left wing. But I think he found, uh, he found that there were complications in that area. So he found it much easier to espouse the cause of Greek independence, for example. Because that seems straightforward. There you were fighting to free a people from another oppressive force. That was a mm. different matter. And he was, he was straightforward about that. Do you feel like we're painting a picture of kind of a, a stormy reputation in life and sort of the, the scandals that attach to him and the rumors and so on? Do you think this is something he brought about, or was he kind of a victim of this celebrity scandal culture? Oh, it's always the case that there's a bit of both, isn't there, in, mm. in these mm -hmm. cases. One of the things was he was extraordinarily, for complicated reason, I think, a pugnacious person. Um, mm. He didn't take boxing lessons for nothing. I mean, he was not going to back down. So in some ways, he was not going to conform. In that sense, he could be thought of as his own worst enemy. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, yes, there was an awful lot of prejudice around. So I don't know, as I say, it's always a mixture. He didn't like being a celebrity. Mm. He hid from people when he was abroad. Well, in Switzerland, for example, he was very unwilling to mix with tourists um, who, who would come to stare at him. Um, <laughs> and the same, he, he liked Venice because there weren't many British tourists around. Mm. He didn't he didn't enjoy 
being the center of attention in that sense at all. When you go through his life, do you find yourself saying, yes, I, I understand what he was trying to accomplish and why, and it all makes sense to me, and I think he's once again being misunderstood, or do you find yourself shaking your head and thinking, what was he thinking here? Of course this was going to backfire on him. And <laughs> oh, I just don't know. <laughs> he was just interested in, in the fact that he was enormously talented, but I'm also interested in, um, we're talking all about the man now, aren't we? But I'm interested in the his melancholy and mm. the mm-hmm. connection of that with his humor. Right. Because I think a lot of his almost addiction to comedy is to do with unhappiness. I mean, one's always got to remember that he was born, uh, he was disabled. He was born with a clubbed foot. So that mm. tormented him all his life, the feeling that he was in some ways marked by fate. Mm. He had a very unhappy relationship with his mother. His father died early. So uh, in many ways he was, not a happy person and and yet he was extremely he could be extremely social and it was natural to him to make fun of things Uh, he he was very fond of of an anecdote about a Methodist preacher looking at his clock and saying no hopes for them as laughs he thought that was very funny but um, (laughs) at the same time it was it's you could turn it round. There was uh, them as laughs have no hopes. I think there's an intimate connection between the comedy in his writing and in his letters, and his ge- quite genuine depressive fits and melancholy, mm. which he gave, of course, to his heroes. That seems to have been part of his inheritance. There's a an undercurrent of depression and suicide in his ancestors. I understand. Yes, I don't know what to do with that. It's always difficult, isn't it? Because yeah. he had, uh, on his mother's side, his maternal grandfather and uh, um, great-grandfather, would it be, committed suicide, we think, by drowning, which is very strange, because, mm. of course, Brian was addicted to swimming. Yeah. And uh, his father was known as Mad Jack Barrand, but I think that was to do with the fact that he was extremely irresponsible and uh, wild, mm. rather than that he was at all insane. I don't think there's much evidence that Byron himself was ever what you would call um, mad or insane. The swimming is very interesting because he was um, he was though he had this club, club foot he was very uh, athletic and anxious to compete with other boys yeah. but of course when you're swimming you, you, you lose the disadvantage that you have if you're running about or playing right. football or or cricket, and he was a, a prodigiously strong swimmer. Yeah, as he yeah. kept on saying, kept on telling us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, even today, there are some some things people find uh, hard to believe that he was able to swim across open seas in in certain bays and things, right? Yeah. Well, I'm not sure. I think uh, nowadays people swim the English Channel yeah, every day, true. as it were. Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, um, if you practice and so on. Uh, but no, he was often in, in the water. He liked. He obviously enjoyed physical exercise. He found it. Uh, but I'm more, in a sense, I'm more interested in um, in the fact that he took uh, boxing lessons and fencing lessons mm. because there you would have you 
would have to have pretty nifty footwork, wouldn't you? I would have thought to to do well. Right. Well, I read a couple of things just to sort of uh, close the loop on this. I read a couple of things that seems like they would have affected a young Byron and driven him toward these feats of athleticism. His mother had once called him a lame brat. That's right. Uh, well, uh, yes, that's, uh, that's absolutely true, yes. Awful. Uh, and towards the end of his life, he wrote, uh, or he didn't finish it, uh, what was it called, The Deformed Transformed, which begins with a, a mother abusing her son for um, for being disabled. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a, a girlfriend I heard, a potential girlfriend, had said, do you think I could care anything for that lame boy? And he had overheard her say that. That's right. Yes, yes. So that must be very, very wounding. Of course, mm-hmm. at the same time, he was regarded as very good-looking, um, mm-hmm. and people found him very attractive. But of course, when he went into society, his limp wasn't very obvious, and he had very good features. And, uh, so clearly, a lot of women found him attractive. Mm. Okay, let's take a quick break and return with more on the fascinating Lord Byron. Okay, we are back, and I want to move toward Byron's humor and his uh, the, the way he blended comedy and this sort of element of melancholy. But I'm curious when you decided to make Byron a focus of your scholarship. Was it when you were reading the letters that you thought, this is someone I should write books about? How does that happen? First of all, it's not the only focus of, mm-hmm. of my scholarship. I began life in this business, uh, writing a book about Wordsworth. Um, oh. Turdsworth, as, um, as Byron <laughs> insisted on calling him. Um, so I was always in- interested in the romantics. And I, I've recently written a book about Standow. I think what fascinates me about Byron is these people who are in many ways of the 18th century in uh, insensibility uh, uh, and yet belong also to the new romantic movement and Byron's a particularly good case of that of course because there came a moment later in his life where he he turned his back on his his young self as it were and and declared that Pope Pope was a very great poet uh, in many ways looked back to the 18th century so I'm interested in those figures and standouts like people who were brought up in a sort of 18th century way and then and then fell in with the new romanticism Mm. do you like that they're on the other side of the french revolution or what is it that makes them gives them such a position that attracts you oh this is well, it's just so now about me, really. Um, <laughs> what I like in Byron is the wit, obviously, the lucidity. Uh, mm. And I suppose, too, that he's a, I'm not sure I should say I like this wholeheartedly, but he's a real child of the Enlightenment. He He doesn't go in much for mysticism. I mean, he had a, tr- he had a problem with Wordsworth because he felt that Wordsworth was a, was a mystic. 
And at one point in writing Child Harold, he does sort of write verses that annoyed Wordsworth very much because he, he, Wordsworth said they were all pinched from Tintin Abbey. Uh, there was a certain kind of mystical feeling about nature. But I don't think that's very natural to Byron. And she, of course, Shelley was very fond of Shelley. They, they got on very well together. But Shelley also c- converted him a little to a kind of transcendentalism. But fundamentally, he's a child of the encyclopedists and the the deist uh, 18th century, I think, in in many ways. Mm. Um, The the humor goes along with that. The wit goes along with that. Right. I can remember when I was in college and I wanted to write one of my papers on the use of the muse in romantic poets. And I went to visit the professor and, and he said... Oh well, the place you need to start with is Byron, and I was kind of surprised by that. And he he told me there's this line in Don Juan of "Hail Muse, etc.," and that just struck me as so kind of ahead of its time. I felt like it was, I felt like suddenly that was the kind of sensibility that I could imagine someone today having toward yes. poetry. That it felt kind of knowing and kind of a wink and just yes. sort of uh, very clever and kind of not taking itself too seriously. It felt like the opposite of a stuffed shirt. Exactly, exactly. And of course, he, well, he was accused of everything, wasn't he? Uh, I think of a very good place, we ought to talk more about his writing, a good place to go to think about the kind of thing you're saying is the vision of judgment. Hmm. Because after all, the last judgment's a big thing, isn't it? Uh, it's a serious subject, and yeah. he's making fun of Robert Southey or Salvey. Um, and I, I mean, I think it's, it's always interesting that the vision of judgment was the title of of Southey's poem, but nobody ever remembers that. All they remember is Byron's parodic version of it, and. Hmm. Uh, and George III arriving at Heaven's Gate and a very grumpy St. Peter and so on, and the debate about whether they should let him in. Um, All that is, yes, all that is, on the one hand, I don't know, quite 18th century, but also quite modern, I think, in in tone. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's a wonderful poem, The Vision of Judgment. I do recommend that to people. Do you feel like his taste for parody and, I mean, does it feel like he was chafing against authority figures and against institutions as well, that that he was kind of trying to poke a hole in the pompousness of everyone around him, or was he really just going after poets? Or, Well, I think it was quite personal, really, because if I remember rightly, it's in my book somewhere, Southey accompanied his poem with a preface in which he declaimed against what he called the satanic school of poetry and clearly identified Byron as its leader and actually said the government should do something about this, sort of invited uh, the authorities to prosecute Byron's publications, basically. So there was a very strong personal element, but there was also... Uh, more generally, he, he disliked pomposity. That's a good word, I think, he mm-hmm. used. Um, and, and false sentiment and hypocrisy. I think all those things he he, he was uh, the enemy of and uh, very effectively. But uh, I don't know. I was just thinking before you rang um, how idiosyncratic I was in liking his humor. Mm. Um, I worry that it, it is 
there's a quite smoking room element to it, if you know what I mean by that, of sort of men amongst themselves joking with each other. That mm. First of all, women might find offensive, but some men might find offensive. I've got this, uh, this is not in my book, so I, I got it out. Um, this has always amused me, and uh, it goes back to when I first discovered Byron's letters. And it's when Byron sent, I think, the first two cantos of Don Juan to Murray, who was always terribly worried and, and terribly proper. <laughs> and, and Murray complained that he found in the verse, uh, he said he'd found approximations to indelicacy. And uh, obviously, Byron was tickled by this phrase and said it reminded him of a dispute that had been at Cambridge between his friend Davies and George Lamb, one of the sons of Lady Melbourne, who'd been notorious in her youth for the number of her lovers. He hinted at my illegitimacy, Lamb had complained. And when Byron asked whether this was true, Davies had replied, yes, I called him a damned adulterous bastard. Um, <laughs> now... <laughs> No, well, you laugh. Not everybody would laugh at that. And you see, I'm, I'm <laughs> reading it out for, from the letter, but um, it's it's very typical Byron. I'm not sure it goes down well with everybody. Mm, right. If you see what I mean, what, what I mean by the smoking room. Uh, smoking room is where, isn't it, where the the men hived off at a dinner party to smoke their cigars. Right. Are you saying with that, the smoking room, are you saying that it's kind of aggressive and, and in a sort of one-upsmanship, or are you saying that it's kind no. of masculine and testosterone-laden? More of a second. Mm. I mean, I, I just, I, obviously, I find it funny because he finds approximations to indelicacy <laughs> a ridiculous thing to for somebody to say to him. I mean, why don't you say straight out what you mean about why you don't like this poem? So it reminds him of this anecdote, uh, which has the same... Right. Contrast between uh, being mamby pamby in your language and being uh, over frank almost. So that I, it's very, I think it's very Byronic, really. Um, a good example of what some may like and some may not like in his humour, which is a very varied thing. I mean, that's only one aspect of it. Do you think his humour? And just his general willingness to thumb his nose at the world, so to speak, has affected people's critical assessment of him. Does it take him down for people to think he's less serious than he might have actually been? Uh, first of all, I'm reminded now that it's Jermaine Greer who said that Don Juan is the greatest comic poem mm. in the English language. Mm -hmm. um, you see, what's interesting about our culture is that the adventure story it's it's wonderfully illustrated in Walter Scott because he began writing adventure stories in verse as Byron did, but then he switched to prose and was enormously successful in the novel. And the novel really took off in the 19th century and made narrative in verse uh, a complete backwater. So I think the problem is I can't see in the future that people will go back to reading the Corsair or Lara, uh, or many people will go back there. So I think if we, if Byron is to survive into the, into the future, and I hope he, he does, it's through the great comic poems rather than through the more serious stuff. Um, mm -hmm. That was my, as it were, my thesis. But you're a good person to ask this question of. I, I used to always think, 
Shakespeare would have been this amazing novelist if the novel had been a form for him to write yeah. in because of his insight into humanity and his yeah. ability to inhabit the minds of multiple characters across a society and so on. And and Byron, I'm wondering if he, you know, on the one hand, when you started talking about him earlier, I was thinking, oh, it's too bad he never wrote a novel. Absolutely. I mean, um, from time to time, he, he contemplates writing things in prose, and then, but he had such a, a marvelous uh, facility. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. We would lose something without that, the sort yeah. of bounce of his in rhyming verse. verse he, yeah. He, um, he's, a, he's, well, he's a genius. I mean, he could, uh, to give that up. However, um, this brings me to a a famous uh, complaint that everybody makes. Uh, he did write some excellent prose, and he wrote a, famously a memoir of his life, which he gave to Tom Moore uh, to look after. It dealt, apparently, with the breakdown of his marriage, and he offered it to his wife, but she wouldn't read it. And famously, after his death, uh, they got together in his publisher's room and under pressure from Lady Byron's representatives and from his father's starchy friend Hobhouse, they burnt the thing mm. in the grate. It's a famous episode. Um, so they, uh, that would have been a, an extended piece of prose that would have been interesting to look at and to contemplate in the context you've established about why didn't he write more prose. Well, and based on your description of his letters, it sounds oh, like yeah. we have evidence that he was kind of a master of, of was, prose yeah. as well. Yes, he was. Yes, you can tell from the letters. But he, he wasn't the only person whose prose narratives were very popular. It was a great fashion of the time. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that it's... Can you think today of a narrative in verse that's well-known and popular? I find it hard. <sighs> I don't even know what comes close. It's completely disappeared, hasn't it? People yeah. Could, yeah. Maybe uh, yeah. Vikram Seth, yeah. his yeah. suitable boy, is the last one I can think of that made any yeah. kind of splash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, uh, there you are. I think for that reason, because I don't think uh, Child Harold is going to be read much in the future, I would say that I'd put my money on Don Juan and... Mm -hmm. Vision of Judgment, and Beppo, of course, which is marvelous, too. Did Byron think that his poetry would stand the test of time? Did he think he was writing for posterity? Um, Byron has uh, lots of unpleasant aspects to his character, but uh, he has some very positive ones, and one of them was that I don't think I don't think he took himself that seriously uh, or felt that his stuff would survive long. That's partly, I think, why he was, he was very ambitious and wanted to make a name, but that's partly why he was always looking to get involved in, well, of course, in the War of Greek Independence, to make an impression on the world in a different way from writing. Mm. His, his attitude to writing was very complicated. He, After all, his first book was called Hours of Idleness. <laughs> he didn't seem to take it seriously, though I think he did. And he wouldn't accept any money for it for a long time. He was rather in for a dig for a, an aristocrat to write for money. So mm. he had a complicated attitude, well, to having been born with these fantastic gifts for writing. Mm. So... For people who maybe have dabbled in Byron and they're looking to jump in further, would you recommend one of the poems, or would you say they should start with the letters? 
No, no, no. I would. I shouldn't say they should start with the letters. That would be. I did, but that. <laughs> no, I would. I would recommend Vision of Judgment and Beppo. Uh-huh. Those two poems. And if you like those, then you can go on to Don Juan, uh, which is much longer, of course, very long. And the the letters will come in naturally from there. I think. I think that's the way I would go about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I'll answer my own question by telling listeners that another excellent place to start would also be your book, Byron, in the Critical Live series by Reaction Books. That's Reaction with a K. David Ellis, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Not at all, not at all. Thank you for having me. And finally today, we hear from three best-selling authors, Ariel Lahan, Christina McMorris, and Susan Meissner, who joined us last year to discuss their novel, When We Had Wings, an interwoven tale about a trio of World War II nurses stationed in the South Pacific. After our conversation, I asked them to choose the last book they would like to read. Okay, we are joined now by three authors, co-authors of the book, When We Had Wings, Ariel Lahan, Christina McMorris, and Susan Meissner. And usually I give people a heads up on this question, but I decided to uh, surprise the three of you with it. it. This question comes from a listener, and I'm I'm compiling these and, and putting them together in a special episode. And the listener asks, what do you want your last book to be? This will be the last book you will ever read. You can either name one that exists or describe one that has not yet been written. Christina McMorris, let's start with you. Do you have an idea for what you would want your last book to be? Oh, of course you're going to start with me. So the other two get to cheat and think about this hard question. This is a hard, oh my goodness. It's like, what do you want your last meal to be? There are so many options. Um, Let me think on that one. So that is a good question. Let me think. I guess that is hard. Um, I will just have to... I guess, circle back to one that has immediately came to mind. So I'll go with the one that popped up first. Okay. And that is one of my favorites since childhood. And I think it has a completely different meaning as an adult uh, when you reread it as a parent. And that is The Giving Tree. Oh. So just about yeah. the, the cycle of life and the stages that we go through, being mm-hmm. from a kid all the way to an adult and you know, sort of the selfish stages that we go through and also the compassion and the the amount of the forgiveness and um, and the care, the unselfish care and selfless care that we give as a parent when that becomes our child becomes first, no matter what. And And I think that's really beautiful. And it kind of comes to a nice ending of just wanting to sit and be quiet and enjoy the moment and be present. And that seems very fitting. Yeah, that'd be the right frame of mind. For you to be in at that moment. Yeah, absolutely. Mm, that's a beautiful choice. Susan, how about you? That is probably the most difficult question anybody has ever posed <laughs> to me. Oh my goodness. I even had three minutes to think about it. And I, you know, I too was drawn back to childhood books, which is interesting to me that Christina and I both, that's where our hearts took us mm-hmm. for such a difficult question was, was to books that we read when we were young. And so for me, um, even that was hard to choose, but I, I think it's going to be The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Oh, Lewis. Yeah. I just love those books, and I would, yeah. I would say all seven of them. We'll but give I know you, you all seven. For yep. one. Okay, thanks. I want the whole set. <laughs> um, you know, those books 
meant a lot to me when I was young. I read them mm-hmm. to my children. I know I'm going to be reading them to my grandchildren. And I, I just love the different themes. You know, it's allegory. And I know allegory is not everybody's a cup of tea, but I love it. I love how the whole thing is one huge metaphor. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, you know, the life of faith isn't an easy life, but it gives you context, not only for living, but for your future beyond this life. And I just love how C.S. Lewis was able to bring the big ideas of faith to such a thin little volume that just continues to transcend time. I think it's always going to be a classic. And I feel like if it's my last book, that means I'm, I'm not long for this world and I'm going to a better place. And that book just prepares you for that better life in such a nice way. Mm-hmm. And one way of looking at allegory is kind of uh, is like a, a puzzle where you're kind of matching up one for one. Oh, this means yeah. this and, and this means that. But you're right about Lewis, the way he's able to, it, it's almost like it expands outward and, and it, yeah. it almost universalizes the feeling of faith or the 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 concept of faith. It seems like it would be a very comforting place to be as your last book. I totally agree. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Ariel, you've lucked out. You, you've had the longest <laughs> amount of time to wait, although you've got two pretty good answers that uh, have been taken off the board here, unless you want to repeat one of theirs. <laughs> what, would, well, what would your last book be? You should have actually started with me because I had my answer immediately. Mm. And I had just been waiting for my turn. Okay. <laughs> um, actually, overachiever. My overachiever. <laughs> always 100% of the time an overachiever. So much so that I have two answers. There's okay. kind of a tie. So I'll start with the one that I'm not going to choose because Susan kind of took it. Mine, one of my books, also a novel from the Narnia series. Mine would have been though a horse and his boy. Mm-hmm. It's my personal favorite of the series, and it's the story of Aslan guiding this young boy home. He's just guiding him on his journey home. Mm. And I cry every time I read the book. I still read it once, once a year, maybe once every other year. And it is so poignant and so beautiful. So that's the first half of my tie. The second half, however, though, if I'm going out, like if I know this is the last book I get to hold in my hands, honestly, it would be the Bible. I want to mm. go out reading the book that brought me to faith in the first place. Mm-hmm. So that's the one that wins my tie with, of course, C.S. Lewis, a close second. Do you have a particular part of the Bible that you think you'd be reading? I'm wondering if there's a a particular book that you think would be the most appealing to you at that moment. Again, I have an answer. I am so proud of myself today. (laughs) Um, If I'm going out, again, this is the last thing I get to read. It's going to be Job 13, 15. And it says, Mm. though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So trust. Yeah, like yeah. if you're going out, if you're breathing your last, it's a matter of trust and it's a matter of faith. And it's, um, I hope I hope I get to go out like that. Yeah. That would be my prayer. It is a very uh, remarkable book and um, mm-hmm. and does, uh, I could see how that would help encapsulate uh, a human life and getting you prepared for the next step. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, Ariel Lahan, Christina McMorris, and Susan Meissner, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to David Ellis for joining me. Oh, man. I could talk about Byron for days, I think. And my thanks to our When We Had Wings authors, Ariel, Christina, and Susan. I don't know how we keep this up, people. This 
podcast that keeps chugging along, except I do know that we have great guests. They are the engine that powers the show. Next week, we'll have some great literature to power the show. I think we're going to take our annual dip in the Henry James Waters. A good read for spring. Oh, man, this is a good one. He has so many, but this one in particular is good. I can hardly wait, and I hope you join us for that as well. It's like those hot mineral springs for the sick and infirm. A Henry James novella. Restorative waters indeed. I'm Jack Wilson, the conjurer of restorative waters. Chief spigoteer, let's say. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.